you got your Bible, look with me there in Philippians chapter 1. As we get started, I want to uh, just point out and, uh, and remind you maybe of some church history that you are aware of. A man by the name of John Huss was uh, born in Husenitz, Bohemia back in 1372. Anybody alive back then? I didn't think so. John Huss studied theology at the University of Prague. In 1402, he was ordained a priest and appointed the preacher at Bethlehem Chapel there in Prague. Later in 1409, he was named rector of the university. Huss was a man who was greatly influenced by the ministry and the writings of John Wycliffe, that English theologian and scholar who called for reforms in the midst of the corruption there that was pervasive in the Roman Catholic Church during that day. Like Wycliffe, John Huss rejected any biblical basis for the Pope's authority over the church. Instead, he insisted that the Word of God, the Bible, was authoritative in all church matters. He rejected the doctrine of transubstantiation and believed that every Christian, here's something to, to think about, every Christian ought to own a copy of God's Word, ought to be able to read the Bible in their own language. His beliefs, his teachings, and the influence that he was gaining began to bring the full weight of papal authority against him. In fact, in January of 1415, Huss was invited to attend the, the Council of Constance, being guaranteed safe travel by Emperor Sigismund. That's a funny name to say. There at the council, as he was there to talk, as he was there to share his beliefs, as he was there to talk about the, the, the rising controversy within the Roman church, and, and he and others uh, uh, protest against it, charges of heresy were drawn up. Huss was arrested. He was confined to a room there in the palace until he was allowed to argue his case before the council. They brought 40 articles against him. During his defense, he said that because he was not allowed to appeal to the Pope, he had instead appealed to the high judge, to Jesus Christ himself. And the members of the council, when they heard him audaciously make this statement, mocked and laughed at him for it. They condemned him to death and burned him at the stake. If you think you got it bad as a Christian today, put yourselves in John Huss's and people like him, their shoes. On July 6, 1415, John Huss was led past a fire where they were burning his books and was bound to a stake with a chain. As the executioner wrapped the chain around him, Huss smiled and said this, My Lord Jesus Christ was bound with a harder chain than this one for my sake. So why should I be ashamed of this rusty chain? Bundles of sticks were piled up to his neck, and then the Duke of Bavaria tried to get him to recount his teachings. Huss replied, No, I never preached any doctrine that was evil, and what I taught with my lips I will now seal with my blood. When the wood was lit, the flames engulfed him. Huss sang a hymn so loud and so cheerful that it could be heard above the crackling of the fire and above the noise of the crowd who was watching him burn to death. The council members gathered Huss's ashes and cast them into the Rhine River so that no remnant of Huss would remain on the earth. They, however, could not erase the memory and the teachings from the minds of his followers. In reality, Huss became more of a thorn in the flesh, more of a threat to the corrupt papacy in death than he ever was in life. Why do I share a story from church history this morning? 
You say, I'm in church this morning. It's a Sunday. I don't want to go to history class. What's the point of this history? I share it because John Huss, like so many others have throughout the history of Christendom, lived out Philippians 1.21. Remember what we looked at last week where Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Huss lived out his life and he died in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we hear and read stories like that, this radical abandonment, this radical uh, 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 belief and adherence to the calling and the will of Christ in one's life may seem foreign to modern believers. It's like it's something of yesteryear. After all, we today know very little of suffering for the cause of Christ. You know, it's been said that the Christian life is not a playground, it's a battleground. And yet for us here in America, we know little of the battleground, we know much of the playground. The privilege that believers enjoy in Christ, as we look at it, as we think about it, as we read about it in Scripture, it ought to remind us that it implies responsibility. The privilege we enjoy in Jesus demands responsibility in the way we live our lives. See, the faith that does not express itself in one's attitudes and words and actions and even in our perseverance, that is not New Testament faith. It's not an easy believism that we adhere to so often in these days. More than likely, you and I will never be called upon to surrender our lives as a martyr. We'll never have to stand before executioners. We'll never have a chain wrapped around us. We'll never have bundles of sticks stacked up to our chins and lit on fire for the sake of the gospel and for our convictions upon it. And yet, we are called to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. My prayer is that if it is our privilege that we would die for our faith that we, like Cusk and so many other godly men and women, would stand firm and glorify God by dying in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus. But while that is not in our future, most likely, I can say with all certainty that we are called upon, we are demanded to live according to the name of Jesus, to surrender our lives in service to him, to surrender our lives in uh, unleashing everything for his glory, dying if needed, but definitely forsaking ourselves for the cause of Christ. So we move to this next passage this morning, finishing out this first chapter of the book of Philippians. What we see here is a tremendous challenge upon us to live in a manner worthy of of the calling of Jesus Christ in our lives. It's a call upon us to not take our faith flippantly. It's a call upon us not to look at haphazardly at, at the way we live as Christians, but to have some sort of uh, just disposition about us that we are living for the glory of God. We want his life to be pressed out through our lives, that it's not just religious rote, it's not just religious action, it's not just religious games that we're playing, but instead it is a life that is being lived out through us in our daily lives, in our families, in our neighborhoods, at the workplace, in every realm of life, that Jesus' life has been conjoined to our life, and they're one and the same. That's what Paul is calling us to in this passage. It was James, the half-brother of Jesus, who told us, faith apart from works is useless. It's dead. There needs to be action behind it. There needs to be life behind it. 
You see, a faith which brings salvation is a faith that produces evidence in our lives. Paul here is concerned that the Philippian believers stay true to Jesus. This morning, I'm concerned that we, as American Christians, as Southern Baptists, we stay true to Christ. That we continue to look at the Bible, we look at the gospel, we stake our lives upon it. The privilege they enjoyed is the privilege we enjoy. And it implies responsibility and fidelity. Look with me in verse 27. Let's read through verse 30. Then I want to come back and share three ways that we express a life lived in a worthy manner. Verse 27. Only let your life, your manner of life, be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened at anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Listen to verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but when we read verse 29 this morning, it probably sounds a little peculiar to us. It has been granted to our, for our sake that we should not only believe in him, but that we should also suffer. What in the world are you talking about, Paul? We'll get to that in just a moment. Paul here, as we come to these verses, is turning his attention away from his personal situation, and now he's going to begin to consider the inner life of the Christian community. It's set against the backdrop of some internal tensions that we're going to see as we walk through the rest of this letter in the coming weeks. It's also set against the backdrop of this growing, fierce, external pressure that's coming upon the Philippian church. Things are beginning to get hotter in the kitchen. And so here in these final verses of this chapter, Paul is expressing that living in a worthy manner involves at least three things, and I want to lay those out for you this morning. How do we live in a manner worthy of the gospel? The first thing I want you to see today is this. Consistency in one's walk goes a long ways to help us, enable us to live worthily. Consistency in one's walk. Uh, I've had the privilege to travel abroad uh, for a lot of years. I, don't, I, don't, I was going to say extensively. I don't know what extensively means. I haven't been to every country or even every continent I longed to go to Antarctica one day. That'd be cool to go to Antarctica, hang out with the penguins and some ice and stuff like that. I've not been there yet, and I haven't been to Australia. I've been to most everywhere else. But as I've traveled uh, overseas, I've been embarrassed uh, uh, maybe a number of times by other Americans. Thankfully, never someone who's with me, not someone who's on the team or who's traveling with me, but I've been in situations, whether it be on an airplane or maybe in a, a bus or some sort of shuttle or public transportation, maybe even in a restaurant or hotel where there were American tourists or Americans just in general, and they get a little rowdy, they begin to say some things or act in ways that's inappropriate to the situation or the culture or, or whatever, and, and in those situations, what happens is, is I'm observing this, and I'm thinking, that's not the way you should talk. That's not the way you should act. You're being too loud. This is a different culture. And so what you see is, is the nationals who are there in the presence of those Americans begin to shake their head and be like, ah, oh, Americans, Americans. 
And so when I'm hearing that, I'm observing that, I want to like raise my hand and say, hold up, they're not representing all of us. Uh, they, they don't represent all of American culture. Yeah, we got knuckleheads, and, and sometimes I'm in that group, but I'm not in that group right now. I just don't want to come to the defense of all of American culture and tell them that they're not a good representation. What we're seeing here in this, this passage, specifically the first part of verse 27, is that Paul is calling upon the Philippian believers to model consistency in their walk. That's what we want to see when we're abroad, traveling as Americans. We want to see that we as a nation, of a culture, represent consistently one another. Paul's calling for the believers in Philippi to consistently walk with Christ, represent Jesus before a watching world. You know, he's just shared with them the internal struggle that he's been battling. We looked at this last week. He's saying something like this. I, I long to depart and be with Jesus. That's better. But I also long to stay here because I know it's good for you. It's good for the church. He's concerned about the welfare, the strength, the stability, the growth of the church there in Philippi. And he knows that if he's present with them, that if he remains, that the church will be strengthened by his instruction but also by his example. Because Paul is going to model consistency in his walk with Jesus. And so as we look at verse 27, I'm sure your translation, like mine, starts with the word only. This word is, is the Greek term monos. It's placed first, actually, in the Greek sentence. Uh, not Most of the time when you're reading it, it's translated English to Greek, or I should say Greek to English. Uh, it may be first in our English sentence, but it doesn't come first in the Greek sentence. Here, it does. It's also emphatic in the way that it's used. The term monos means above all or at all costs. And so coming out of what Paul's already said, hey, uh, I desire to be with you. I desire to strengthen you. I desire to see you grow. So let's get on with that. So how do you do that? He says only above all at all costs. Let there be consistency in your walk. So we know Paul's life. We know what he said. We know that there's really not much of anything that can, that can bring uh, uh, instability to his life that would bring daunting to him. And yet it seems that if the Philippians begin to fail to show themselves living in a worthy manner, then his heart is going to be deeply saddened. And so for that reason here, Paul's exhorting them to be mindful how they live their lives. And I would tell us this morning as Christians, let's be mindful of how we live, how we speak, how we do things, what we're involved with. The word he uses here that is translated, uh, let your manner of life is a word, it's called politiomai in the Greek. It's not usually the normal term, the normal verb that Paul would use as he's talking about a Christian's conduct. There he would use a different word, parapateo, and it just speaks of walking. It just speaks of, of what you're doing. Here he uses this different word that's only used two times in the New Testament. Here and then in Acts 23, verse 1. And it comes from the word polis, which means city. The idea that Paul's laying out here is, is that as you live your Christian life, let it resemble the city you're from. Let it resemble the tribe that you come from. Be representatives of heaven because that's who and that's what you are doing or, or what you are to be. So Paul, this is Paul's way of reminding the Philippians of the obligations that the people of God have in representing that godly society they come from. Right? 
I mean, what greater ties do we have than heaven itself? That is our strongest tie. We should be known by being heavenly minded. We should be known by being a citizen of the kingdom of God, not a citizen of the city I live with or I came from. I was with uh, one of our families yesterday looking at their RV that it's got, and it's, it, it's a model. The model's Springdale. I said, man, there's, obviously this is a great RV because Springdale, right? That, there's nothing better than Springdale. That's my hometown back in Arkansas. Love Springdale. And if you love Tyson Foods, Tyson Chicken, you love Springdale too. That's where they're based. My, my mom and dad. Just tell you a quick story. My mom and dad, she's in high school. My dad's in high school. They got married right after my dad graduated. My mom was, was married her whole senior year, pregnant with me her whole senior year. They met at a Tyson uh, uh, production plant, I guess is the best way to put it, where they butcher the chickens and do all the work. That's where my mom and dad met. That's where they began to court. That led to a relationship, a marriage, and two beautiful, gorgeous <laughs> children. Thank you. You're welcome, Mom. I don't know if she's watching this morning, but you're welcome for that. Paul here is concerned about consistency in the Philippians' walk with Christ. He knows of the internal struggles taking place in the church. I think we all know of internal struggles within our own life and our families and our church as well. He understands the constant temptation coming from the enemy. I think there's where sometimes we have blinders and we don't uh, acknowledge the temptations and the natural pull away from the things of God. And so Paul here is writing, he, he desires for their manner of life to be consistently pleasing to the Lord. And just as he says, whether he's there or whether he's not. So what are we to think about the Christian life? Here's something we need to think about. The Christian life is not your own. The life of the Christian is not his own life. It is Christ's life. Remember what Paul says, for me to live is Christ. He would say something very similar to the church at Colossae. He would say, Christ who is our life. One of the things we need to understand as Christians is that it's no longer me, it's thee. It's no longer my life, it's his life. It's no longer what I want to do, it's what he wants me to do. He, what, what he wants to do through me, it's his life being pressed out. And so our lives as Christ followers ought to clearly depict the character of Jesus and the beauty of the gospel. Amen? When people see you, what do they see? There should be no competing messages coming from how we live. No competing messages for the way that we speak. No competing messages in the way we do our work. Should be no competing messages in the way we play and recreate or whatever category you want to put in your life. There should be no competing messages. They should all line up with the lordship and the character of, the, of Jesus Christ. That was terrible. Should have been a hearty amen for that. Here's what we do know. The lost world around us, they completely understand that our lives should look different from theirs. That's why many times we are shrinking back from maybe being so open about our faith because we know that if they know we're a Christian, they're going to expect that our lives look a little different than they are. We also know that they're more than likely going to label us and slap that label on our lives of hypocrite. And you and I all know that we cannot live up to the holiness of Almighty God, that we are always going to slip and fall. But the goodness of God is, is that there should be progress in our lives. 
The lost world knows that there ought to be a difference. We sometimes forget that. Our lost neighbor, the lost coworker at your workplace expects you to talk different than she does. That person expects to see a consistent pattern of godliness coming from your life because, after all, Jesus is the one who changed you. And so your manner of life ought to match up with the message of the gospel. And so here's a big question. How do we develop this consistency in our lives? How do we do that? I'm like you. I want pragmatic steps in how to accomplish things. When we get something new and it's got to be put together, I'm not the guy that just jumps in there and begins to say, well, I think this will go here. And and if that's you, God bless you. I'm the guy that looks the manual over. I make sure I got all the parts. I figure it out because I don't want to make any mistakes. So I like pragmatic steps. Let me give you just a couple pointers on how we can develop this consistency in our lives. Well, first of all, it comes from spending time with Jesus. You say, well, that's too simplistic. Well, the Christian life is not terribly difficult. It's pretty simple. Spend time with Jesus. Here's an idea. You will generally become like those you spend the most of your time with. Bad company corrupts good morals, Paul said. If you want to be uh, morally corrupt, hang around morally corrupt people. You want to be someone who's, who's fleshing out the gospel, be around people who are fleshing out the gospel. And, and so spend time with Jesus. Let it start there. If you want to look like Jesus, be with Jesus. Spend time with Jesus. And so godly consistency in, the, in our manner of life will develop as we spend time with the Lord. And so there needs to be consistency in your devotional time. I wonder how many, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands because you need to be at the altar confessing this morning. That's a joke, by the way. Maybe, maybe not a joke. But how many of you said, man, I want to read the Bible this year, and you started out strong in January, but here as it is toward the end of March, and you haven't opened your Bible for a devotion in weeks. Hope that stings a little bit. You can't ever be like Jesus if you're not spending time with Jesus. What about your prayer life? Are you spending time in prayer with the Lord? Are you praying? Are you seeking his face? Are you seeking to know him? Or is your prayer time more of, Lord, I got this thing going on today. I need you to bless it. Instead, our prayer time ought to not just be petitioning. It ought to be praising Jesus, adoring him for who he is, allowing his word to kind of soak into our hearts, and you're praying it back to him. You're praying for other people. But so often our prayer time, if we pray, is, Lord, bless me. What about obedience to the Holy Spirit? We can't ever expect to look and smell and and act like Jesus if we're not obeying what His Spirit is leading and teaching and telling us to do. What about rejection of temptation? You can't be like Jesus and be like the world at the same time. You can't hold them in tandem. You've got to let go of one and hold on to the other. What about church participation? You say, what in the world has that all got to do with my Christian life? I'm going to say more about that in the next main point. But the Christian life is to be lived in community. You, there ought to be not just attendance. There ought to be not just this idea of going to come and, and I'm going to put my name there. I'm going to jog, uh, knock it off the list of my things to do because it's Sunday. It ought to be I want to come and be with the church, not come and attend church. I want to participate in the life and the body of the church. And then evangelistic efforts. How do you become like Jesus? 
You share the gospel with others because that's what Jesus did. One of the greatest weapons against the enemy is a godly, consistent life. There's a second thing I want you to see. Living in a worthy manner also involves cooperation in the work. As we continue on in verse 27, we see that the image changes from politics to, or citizenship to athletics in this latter part of the verse. Paul calls for unity of purpose and a striving together for the faith of the gospel. Uh, we get our English word athletics from the term that's translated striving side by side, or at least from the root word of that term. And so this term athleto, when it's, when it's connected to the prefix soon, means to agonize or strive together. I think we're getting a good picture of that as we turn our television sets on the last few days. If you're an avid basketball fan, sorry, UVA fans, by the way, and deeply sorry for you VCUers. They didn't even get to play a game and got, got kicked out. Horrible, horrible situation there. But we got to love basketball these days, especially with all the upsets and the things that are happening. But what we see in the tournament is that for these teams to win, they have to play together. They have to come together. They have to strive together. They have to agonize, cooperate, and work together in order to advance from one round to the next round. They can't come and do what so many people would maybe want to do, and that's play as individuals. They have to play as a team. Basketball is a team sport. As we think about the church, as we think about our life as a Christian, it is a team sport. There's cooperation in the work. So in order for Christians to live in a worthy manner of the gospel, the gospel that's transformed their lives, they must first individually, yes, uh, consistently learn each and every day how to walk with Christ, die to themselves, take up their cross, practice spiritual disciplines, but they also must cooperate in the work of the gospel with other members, with other believers, the church of Jesus Christ. This is a great reminder that we need one another. I, I say this often, but the Christian life is not to be lived alone. Take your Bible, search it from Genesis to Revelation, even go into maps and the table of contents. You won't find anything in the Bible that tells us to take our Christian life and just live it on an island by ourselves. You won't find that. There's no lone rangerism in the Christian life. But what you will see, that even in our creation, it's, it's there in the context of community. As we're saved and brought into the body of Christ, we're not an individual. We are individuals who are part of the body of Christ, working together. As we think about the work of the gospel itself, it's too great of a task to be carried out on our own. We need one another. You say, how do you know that? Well, Jesus himself, how did he send his disciples out? He didn't say Paul, or not Paul, he wasn't there yet. He was still trying to persecute the church. He didn't say, Peter, I want you to go down to Samaria and preach the gospel. Uh, uh, John, I want you to go to this city. James, I want you to go over there. Andrew, you go here. He didn't do that. He said, you two go here, you two go there, you two go there, preach the gospel, come back and tell me how it went. It's too difficult to do on our own. Paul never worked and traveled on his own. So there's no picture of isolated Christians doing the work of the gospel in the New Testament. Instead, what we see is cooperation in the work. As the people of God, we need to pray together. As the people of God, we need to share together. 
We, we need to share the word of God. We need to teach. We need to admonish. We need to encourage. We need to uh, exhort. We do all of this together. See, when believers do life together, cooperating in the work of the gospel, they are setting themselves up to win. Who wants to lose in life? Nobody wants to lose. We all want to win. And when we do life together, we are able to live in a worthy manner, a manner that is reminiscent of the gospel. There's a third thing I want you to see. Living in a worthy manner also involves confidence in the midst of warfare. Confidence in the midst of warfare. It's my opinion, you may disagree, but I believe too many Christians today have little to no concept of the, their faith being lived out on the battlefield. It's like I said earlier. Most of us, I think, have a tendency to view our Christian life as if we're on the playground, not the battlefield. It's easy. It's safe for us. And so we have forgotten that there's a real enemy out there who is not playing. What does the Bible tell us about our enemy? 1 Peter 5.8 tells us he's like a roaring lion prowling around seeking those whom he may devour. John 10, 10, Jesus tells us that our enemy comes to do three things in our lives. Steal, kill, and destroy. How many marriages are being stolen today by the enemy? How many marriages today are being killed and destroyed by the enemy today? How many testimonies in our Christian lives are being stolen and killed and destroyed? Who's doing that? It's the enemy. You think about John Huss, who was burned at the stake for his stance on the gospel, his stance on the Bible, and why he believed that, that people ought to be able to read it in their own language. They ought to be able to hear the gospel and, and respond in faith and repentance to Jesus when he was burned at the stake for that. He had firsthand knowledge of this enemy's warring. And yet, what did John Huss do? He refused to back down. He refused to compromise his convictions. And so he steadfastly and graciously stood tall in the midst of that trial. How did he show such courage and conviction? I'll be honest this morning. I'd love to say that if I was in the predicament that John Huss found himself in, there in Constance, I don't know that I would be able to say, never preached anything evil, and everything that I ever said, everything that I ever taught, I will seal it with my blood. My fear is, is that I might squirm in the midst of that situation and try to weasel my way out of the difficulty. May we all steadfastly and courageously and with conviction stand for Jesus. See, Huss was confident in Jesus and the power of the gospel. This confidence enabled him to live out the exhortation of verse 28, that we would not be frightened in anything by your, our opponents. For this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. See, nothing his opponents did brought fear to Huss's life, but instead the opposite was taking place. His confidence and courage became a sign of salvation for him, and it became a destruction or a sign of destruction to his opponents, to the ones who were killing him. 
And as we think about the spiritual war that we are inevitably engaged in each and every day and about the enemy who's warring against our lives, Paul here adds this other wrinkle that I pointed out to when we were reading through the text. Look at verse 29. He says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should also suffer. Say what? Paul, I think you're mistaken here. You meant they should suffer, right? Here's what we're thinking. I'm in America. That's the church at Philippi, right? It's not me. He's talking to them. He's not talking to me. Here's here's a, a good principle you should learn when reading the Bible. Context will, will maybe quantify this on some level at certain times. But generally speaking, what we read in the Bible can't be different. It can't mean something to us it didn't first mean to them. Right? So when Paul says, it's been granted for your sake to suffer for the sake of the gospel, it also ought to mean that for us in this context. And so that's what Paul is telling us, that it is granted to us. In other words, what we're seeing here is that suffering, according to Paul, is a privilege. That doesn't even make any sense in American culture. What Paul's saying here is that it is a high and holy honor. He's saying that it's good and a gracious gift from God. So believers get to share in the experience of the Lord when they suffer for the sake of the gospel. Jesus told us that just as they hated him, just as they persecuted him, that we should expect the same thing out of our own walk with Christ. So we ought to expect suffering for the sake of Christ. So what is the purpose in all of this? Again, what can we look, how can we look at this pragmatically? What is the purpose in our suffering? Why not just take us to heaven when we're saved? Amen? I mean, that would be a good deal. Hey, live life, uh, hear the gospel, understand your separation from God, understand the judgment you're in. Absolutely, I recognize that. I want to turn from that and gain heaven and immediately go there. I can't think of anything more glorious than perhaps living in this life and all the trials and all the difficulties and God so infusing your life that you can look the devil and everything he throws at you and say, not today, I'm with Jesus. So let me give you some points here, some ideas of why, there, why we get to go through suffering. And I say that on purpose, get to go through suffering. Maybe it's because it's a sign of judgment to the loss, right? That's what he says in verse 28. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction. It's a sign of judgment to the loss when they bring persecution and suffering to the life of the believer. It is a further indictment upon their life. Paul would say it a little bit different in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He talks about how the way we live our life is, a, is an aroma of life to life or of death to death. Life to those who are saved and in Christ, death to those who are separated from God and under his judgment. Secondly, it's a proof of salvation for the believer. I mean, how could anyone stand in the face of such suffering, in the face of such difficulties and trials, and be steadfast in that without the enablement of God's Spirit and His power flowing through us? And so for the redeemed, this is an aroma of life, giving us assurance and proof of salvation that we are in fact in Christ. 
if we're honest this morning, there are moments in our lives when we begin to wonder, I wonder if I really am saved. I know you've had those thoughts. It's okay to have those thoughts on some level. It's okay to wonder about that. It's very encouraging when you can look back over your life and see evidence. Absolutely, I'm with Jesus. Not because of what I've done, but man, look at what he's done and how he enabled me to stay true to him and to his word when it would have been easy to go awry. A third reason, it's a source of encouragement and strength to the church. We saw this back in verses 12 through 14 where, where Paul says there, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that those throughout the imperial guard have heard it, but also the church has been emboldened to preach and to teach and to share the gospel with others. You see, when brothers and sisters are struggling, when they're being persecuted, when they're experiencing suffering, there's something that happens there when God uses that and magnifies that trial and he flames it into a fire that burns throughout the church and encourages and impassions them and emboldens them to stay true. The simplest whiff of persecution will oftentimes put backbone into what might be timid and weak Christians. So the strain of conflict, the suffering, builds spiritual disciplines and deepens confidence and dependence upon the Lord. If you've spent any time in, I've got to hurry. If you've spent any time in the weight room, you know this to be true, right? If you want your muscles to get um, mass, if you want them to get definition, you don't just walk in the weight room and kind of just browse around and, and just haphazardly walk and then walk out. No, you've got to get under the tension of the weight, right? Y'all ever been to a gym? No one's like, it's like, no, I don't know what that is. It's a foreign term to me. No, I know. I've seen some of you there. So if you want to gain strength, you have to be under the tension. Here, this is what the Lord's doing through the trials of your life. He's putting the weight on you so that you would learn not to have strength in your own power, because that's always going to fail on some level. He's teaching you to, to trust in his power so that your spiritual muscles are growing and becoming more defined so that his life is being pressed out through your life. This is going to be a Probably a terrible illustration, but for some reason, right now, please, illustrations only go so far. Allegories or, or metaphors only go so far. So maybe go with me for just a brief moment here, but I'm thinking of the Hulk. <laughs> this picture came to my mind, right? You've got uh, Banner, who's nothing but a scientist, and he's real small, and, and he's scrawny, but when the Hulk comes out in him, see, that inner man is living within him, and when Hulk comes out, he transforms into a completely different being. Now, of course, the metaphor in that illustration there is the Hulk is a little bit psychotic, and Banner's not. I'm not saying Jesus is that, so don't take it that way. But the life of Jesus ought to be pressed out through you in such a way that his life becomes evident, his strengths become evident in you, and your weaknesses are superseded. that make any sense? I was dangerous going off on an illustration I hadn't thought well through. John Huss, man, I admire this guy, is chained to a stake and burned alive for his biblical and gospel convictions. Again, it's highly unlikely, though it's becoming more 
easily understandable that this could happen at some point, but more than likely we'll never experience that kind of trial. But while that's not the lot for our lives, Jesus does call us every day to take up our cross, deny ourselves, and to follow him. We're to give our lives over to Jesus as a living sacrifice. Paul said in Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. He's not calling us to lay our lives down physically. That is the lot for some, but it's not the lot for all. But all of us are called, commanded by God, to give our lives over as a living sacrifice. 1 Peter 2, 5 says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's what we're to do. Allow our life to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord. A couple questions I want you to think about. What does the man of your life look like? Take assessment of yourself for just a moment. Maybe you wanted to sit there in the quietness of your seat and just close your eyes and say, Lord Jesus, what does my life look like? What's the manner, what's the disposition of my life? Does it today resemble the life of Christ? In other words, when people hear you talk, do they think of heaven? Do people see how you love your spouse and your children and think of God's family? Are people able to catch a glimpse of Christ's faithfulness by observing how you faithfully serve serve others and work hard? Do they experience a taste of the cross's forgiveness by the way you forgive and show grace? Does the way you spend your money reveal heaven's priorities? What's the manner of your life look like? Citizens of heaven... Our strongest ties, I said earlier, ought to be with that glorious city that awaits. Therefore, when others observe how we live, they should be confronted with the culture of heaven and the life of Christ. And so you should be living in a manner worthy of the gospel. There's never a reason that you ought to be ashamed for how you live. And and hear me this morning. I'm not talking about behavioralism or behavior modification. We're talking about getting alone with Jesus and allowing him to so consume your life that it's not you trying harder, it's you surrendering more so that his life begins to be pressed out through the pores of your life. That's what Christian living is about. It's not white knuckling, boy, I just got to do this. I got to say no to these things. I got to do better. I got to try harder. I got to grit more. No, you just need to surrender and yield and perhaps confess some sin that's been there. And they say, Lord, my life is yours. It hasn't looked like yours at all, but I want it to. And just yield. For some of us in this room, maybe watching us online today, You can't try harder. You can't do more. You can't even surrender your life because you've not surrendered it. So the greatest need in your life today is to say yes to Jesus for the very first time. To confess your sins, to turn from it, to place faith and trust in Jesus for salvation and Him alone. Not religion, not church attendance, not anything else. Not pedigree. You know, Grandma's been a Christian for X amount of years and you're just kind of trying to ride her coattail into heaven. There's no grandchildren in, 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 in the church. There's no grandchildren in God's family. You have to make that decision yourself. So what's the manner of your life look like? Does it look like Jesus or does it look like you?